Oh, Rob, what are you doing? We need to start the podcast. Andy, I'm putting all my cash under the mattress. But Rob, that's so risky. What if somebody finds it? Andy, what do you suggest? Bitcoin? No, definitely not Bitcoin. I'd ask my accountants for investment advice. I use Quantify accountants in Bodo Junction. Have you heard of them? Are they the ones that spell Quantify with a PH? That's them. Quantify, as in Q-U-A-N-T-I-P-H-Y. Look, they're terrific. A medium-sized four-partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement and investment advice. They also have other divisions like a mortgage broking division and a superannuation division. And they're just above the interchange in Bodine Junction. And they're not your stereotype boring accountants. Maybe not hip, but definitely modern. Oh, what are you doing now, Rob? I think I left my keys under the mattress. Quantify Accountants, proud sponsors of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. My name's Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Andy, where are we? Season 3, Episode 2. What are we talking about today? Okay, so Rob, today we are looking at the first real opera ever written. Mm, opera. Mm, I, need to, I need to be convinced. Okay, you will definitely be convinced. But before we look at opera, just to, for a recap about what we're doing in this series, this series is looking at six works that completely changed the whole concept of music. Okay, last episode we listened to a mass. We did. The first full mass ever written, Macho's Mass. And that was in the medieval times. Today we are moving closer to modern times. Now we're only 400 years ago. Okay, it's, it's just around the corner. Just yesterday. And just to remind everyone, this is Series 3. If you haven't listened to Series 1 and 2, keep listening now. But you can always go back in Series 1. We covered the basics of music, melody, rhythm. Series 2 was the families of the orchestra. Oh, you are so good. That's exactly what it is. So one, as you said, all those bits of music, what makes up music. Last one, all the instruments and conductors. And this one, these are the pieces that really change the whole the course of musical history. Okay, and for those people that want to rate and review us, please do so. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five star, tell us what you think, let your family and friends know, go to Spotify, Look, we want to keep growing this. We love making it. Andy, yes. other things you love making and I love vibing, the second C <laughs> of coffee, cake and culture. That's right. Cake. The cake. So today, Rob, is a cake that was incredibly trendy about a year and a half ago. It's a cheesecake called a Basque cheesecake. And if you looked on all the socials, everybody was making Basque cheesecakes. I had been making Basque cheesecakes before that before it was trendy and then I didn't make it for the whole time it was trendy because everyone was and then the other day I made another one and it is such an awesome cheesecake. Now I'm looking forward to trying that at the end of the podcast but when we talk Basque we talk mm. Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France. Yeah we are. I'm not actually quite sure why it's called a Basque cheesecake but the beauty of this cheesecake is that it's almost Well, it's not almost burnt. It is burnt on top. So it's a cheesecake. It's a solid cheesecake. No base. I know my husband loves base, but there's no base in this cheesecake. But it is so dark and rich and caramelized on top because you cook it until it is 
actually burnt on top. So it has this volcano sort of look on the top of it because it's sort of charred on top, but it gives it this incredible, incredible yum. It's kind of cake I think I can make. I'm good at burning things. Oh, then this cake is just for you. And it's not only that, it is a really easy cheesecake. You throw it all in, you mix it up, you throw it in the pan and you let it burn. So Andy, I'm sure you know people can get a sense of the recipe by us talking, but the best way is to look on the website. Coffeecakeandculture.com.au in the recipe section and there's a Basque cheesecake recipe for you. Okay, sounds awesome. Now let's talk opera. Yes. I'm warming up my lungs now. Okay, perfect. Just don't start singing. So if we think about opera, I think that most people think that opera sort of evolved over time, like the symphony, like the concerto, like an orchestra itself, sort of developed over time. But that's actually not the case. Opera is an invented musical idea. Okay, so it wasn't coming as an adaption of people nope. singing? Nope, nope. It was actually invented. And it was invented at a very important time in musical history, right at the end of the Renaissance period and the beginning of the Baroque period. The Renaissance period was from about 1400 to 1600. And then the Baroque period started around 1600. So we're at this period from the end of the Renaissance to the Baroque. And there are so many things that are happening in the artistic world at this period. We think about that this is a period where literature is changing. Shakespeare is writing his plays. And if we think about his plays, so many of his plays are about this shift in ideas and shift in in attitude. In series one, we talked about Pythagoras and we talked about the idea of the cosmos and how music was all related to the ratios between the stars and we could hear all this, Pythagoras said he could hear all this celestial music, this music of the cosmos. Well, that's a really renaissance type of concept all about spirits and supernatural. And then when we move into the Baroque period, it's a period much more of the notion of humanity, of human touch and human emotion. It's a real shift from the Renaissance to the Baroque. And if we think about going back to Shakespeare, if we think about Shakespeare's plays, we can see this germination happening at this time. You know, if we look at Twelfth Night, Twelfth Night was written between 1601 and 1602. What's the first lines of Twelfth Night? If music be the food of love. I can't believe you knew it. That's exactly right. It should be my line underneath Coffee Cake and Culture. If music be the food of love, play on. I mean, if that isn't the most humanistic concept here he's relating the whole concept of love and music to food i mean duh (laughs) but then if you look at midsummer night's dream say midsummer night's dream has both of these ideas midsummer night's dream is all about fairies and all that supernatural stuff but it also has this middle section which is sort of like a story within a story with the mechanics who are as humanistic as you can possibly get so we really have in midsummer night's dream this juxtaposition between the old stuff with the fairies and the modernistic stuff of the time with the with the mechanics. So this we can see in Shakespeare these two changes in, in ideas and we really can see it in music as well. So in the end of the 1500s, early 1600s, there's a group of dilettantes sitting around in Florence. They called themselves the Camerata and there were a bunch of intellectuals. There were aristocrats and, and 
learned men, and they called themselves the Camerata. And they were run by a guy called Bardi. And he was the ringleader of this group. And he was a nobleman and he was a songwriter. And this group, they talked about the arts and sciences and, and they were really into Greek culture. And they thought that the Greek plays were actually sung, that they weren't just staged, that they had singing and things like that. And they thought that what would be a great idea would be to write a piece of music which was like the Greek tragedies of old, where there was a storyline, a Greek storyline, one of the Greek tragedies put to music, because this is how they believed the Greek tragedies were acted. And so they wrote in 1598 the first opera. And they called it an opera because opera in Italian means the work. And what opera was, was all the arts in together creating this work. And if we think about what opera is, opera is is singing and it's music and it's dancing and it's staging and it's costume design and it's acting and it's set. It's all of the creative arts in one place. It is the work. So in 1598, they wrote the first opera. The composer was a guy called Perry and the librettist, the guy who wrote the story, was a guy called Rinuccini. Did they work together? Yeah, yeah. So they were both part of the Camerata and they worked together and they wrote the opera Daphne. Now, Daphne is a Greek tragedy and it's a story about how Daphne is changed into a laurel to escape the attention of Apollo. And apparently this was a mixture of ballet, song recital, fashion show, poetry reading. It had all the art sort of thrown at it. And Rinuccini said it gave pleasure beyond belief to those who heard it. And those who heard it were really just sort of the camerata and a few friends. It was a very small production, really just like, is this going to work? The content of Daphne involved her changing to escape the clutches of a god. Yes. It's a bit me too, isn't it? <laughs> Polo abusing his power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you read any of the tragedies? <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I They're very much like that, yes. Yeah. So, but, I mean, it must have been quite out there to actually link music to uh, performance. And, yeah, I get the whole use of staging and art and things mm. like that all in one. All wrapped up together. So it's not like there wasn't songs before that and staging of little bits but to write out the music for a whole story and act it and sing it this was the first time it had ever happened should we have a little bit of a listen to a little bit of it on there musically is enormous. If we think about the music of the Renaissance, the music of the Renaissance was 
about something called polyphony. Now, I know we've talked about polyphony a lot of times. Polyphony is when you have many lines of music all being played at the one time. It's very thick. It's very dense type of music. Was that dense, what you just heard there? No, it seemed to me it was just a voice Mm -hmm. and a backing piano. I think it was probably a lute and a few instruments playing sort of very much underneath the voice. Okay. Now, that was a huge transition in music from the Renaissance to the Baroque because what this group of dilettantes not only did in writing this new type of music called opera, but they also, one of the other things that they talked about was the fact that music had become so textural and so dense that it was impossible to hear the word. And they believed that the word was all important. So they wanted to write music where the word was dominant and the music was less important. So instead of having this music where the melodies are all running on top of each other so you can barely hear the words, they wanted something where the word was really clear, like a line of music and an accompaniment below it. Hmm. How was it received? I mean, you said it was just for a small group of the Camerati. Mm, Camerati, yeah. So I think that it blew people away, that this was music totally, totally, totally different from anything that had been written before. And I think it's incredible. I find it very hard to get my head around this concept, that you have a bunch of dilettantes sitting in Florence talking about how they want to have their music. And this starts a new musical movement. Not only the opera, but this thing is called monody, where you have a line of music and accompaniment compared to the polyphony of the Renaissance. And let's have a little bit of a listen to polyphony. So you can hear how dense and thick that music is. There's so much going on. It's got all the elements, melody, bass, etc. Yeah, all of them sort of intertwined there. So to have that and then move to something so word-based, I find it amazing to think that these guys changed the whole concept of music. Were the lyricists matching the tone of the music to, say, the emotion they want to get across at that stage? Yes, they're called the librettists. The librettists are the ones who write the words. And so what they wanted to do with the libretto was to create the emotion in the word. Absolutely. And it's interesting that right until the 19th century, quite often the musician, the composer, was a lesser of lesser importance than the writer. 
it changes throughout time, but quite often they would say the words were written by blah and give a whole lot of information and the music was written by blah. Hmm, inter- interesting. Yeah. So it's your, I mean, I've got modern, you know, interpretations of that, thinking Lennon, McCartney and thinking more like Elton John and Bernie Taupin and things like that, how they how they relate music to the lyrics of a song. Yes, but if you want to think about it in in that modern time, you can think about it that we know who sings whatever, but quite often we don't know who wrote it. Mm. Now it's very much the the performer that we know rather than who actually created the product. So beforehand this just didn't exist as a concept? No, there were definitely songs and masses and all that sort of stuff. But to create a whole, like you know last time we talked about the mass and there were lots of sections of the mass written by other people, but it was Marshall who actually stuck it all together, wrote one that was whole. This is what these guys did. They wrote something whole with Daphne, that the whole story of Daphne is betrayed in in a one entity. So the first opera was called Daphne. Daphne, yep, yes, no comment. But it was obviously popular enough and exciting enough that two years later in 1600 there's a, a royal wedding and there's a wedding between Maria de' Medici and Henry IV of France. So a pretty important wedding. You know, you've got the, the most important people in Italy, the Medicis marrying the king of France, and they – go to the camerata and they say to the camerata, we've heard this thing called opera. It seems to have been quite successful. Can you write another one? So Perry and Rinuccini write another opera. The opera that they write this time is also based on a Greek tragedy and the opera is Eurydice's. Now, Eurydice's is about man's arrogance and doom. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Interesting choice for a feisty Italian wedding. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, at at our wedding it was more just covers. but (laughs) (laughs) Sure, go for an opera. (laughs) You can imagine here is this wedding that goes on for days and days and days and, you know, they're all plastered and they're all sort of, I don't know what, that they did at royal weddings in the 1600s, but you can imagine it was pretty, pretty over the top. And then you have this opera about doom and man and man's arrogance. In the context of probably the biggest wedding ever, yeah. you know, I mean, you're right, Medici's and the French linking up. It's, Pretty huge. It's Beckham and Spice. That's it's right. A- <laughs> well, you may not be so surprised to know that that was a total disaster. The marriage. Not, oh, well, probably the marriage, but no, the, the opera was a total disaster. It was not a good choice of subject matter. And seriously, the whole concept of opera could have died right there and then. So it was essentially the, there was no wedding planner going, hey, maybe can you, can you do something a bit more uplifting? That's right, exactly. Let's have a little listen to a little bit of Eurydice's.
I heard women singing. Surely women were not singing at that stage. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Women were not singing. That would have been a castrato. Okay, yes. I remember if you listen back in Series 1, we did discuss some of the details of the previously available castrato, which no longer exists. Thank God. So the castrato would have been used. And, and that's really interesting too because, you know, the castrato were, were made for the church but here they are being taken from the the church and being used now for secular music. Was mm. the castrato playing a female role and dressed in, accordingly? Y- yes, often, yes. But, but as time goes by, not necessarily. And if we think about Shakespeare's plays, women weren't allowed to be on stage initially. So it was young boys who took the female roles. What we see in opera as opera goes on is that the male role is often sung by a castrato and they were the lead as we would now have a tenor as the lead. They would have a castrato. So you would have the soprano when women started to sing in the roles in operas, which sort of comes around a bit later than this. We have the soprano and the castrato as usually the love interest, so you have two high voices singing together. Okay, so you didn't have a baritone, you didn't have a deep Well, you would have, them, but that would have been the great uncle or the father, and that was sort of the lesser role. There were almost no tenors. They didn't like the sound of the tenor voice. It was all about those high voices. If we get back to opera, so we had this second opera, Eurydice's, total disaster. Opera could have died there and then. Second album's often the toughest. It, it's often the toughest, and that was it, except for a total twist of fate, which was that at this wedding there was a cousin of the bride and his name was Vincenzo Gonzaga. Gonzaga got a last-minute invite and he's at the wedding. <laughs> Probably not a last-minute invite, but could have. Anyway, Gonzaga is living in Mantua, which is in the north middle of Italy. And his family are the most important family in this area. They had been controlling Mantua since 1328. So very important family, very, very wealthy family. And he's at the wedding with his mate, but also his lawyer, who was also a librettist, a guy by the name Stringio. So let me get this clear. The, lib- the librettist yeah. was also a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> There's one for you lawyers out there. <laughs> Love it. Yes. So at this wedding is Gonzaga. And Gonzaga turns to Stringio and says to him, listen, this opera thing was a bit of a disaster here, written this opera written by Perry down in Florence, but I have a feeling that our composer in Mantua might make a better deal of this. So as Gonzaga and Stringio are winding their way back up to Mantua, they're having a little bit of a discussion about this. They get to Mantua and they discuss this brand new thing called opera. I'm sure his lawyer, mate, was checking there was no patents on the concert. That's right, no copyright going on. And he suggests that, not suggests, he probably tells his composer in residence that he wants one of these operas to be written for him. Now, who is Gonzaga's composer? Monteverdi. 
Ah, Monteverdi, yes. Monteverdi, the most important, the bestest, most incredible composer of this period, Monteverdi, is Gonzaga's composer in residence. So Gonzaga's got an in-house composer and an in-house lawyer. Yes. He's got it all. (laughs) So let me just tell you a little bit about Gonzaga. So as I said, his family had been ruling this area of Italy for centuries at this stage. He was a huge patron of the arts and of sciences. He was a womanizer. Surprise, surprise. He had had two duels over women, one killing his interpreter and one killing his court organist. He was also obviously married with children himself. And when he died, his son took over the throne and his son wasn't nearly as involved in either arts or science. And he saw all of these paintings and all of this stuff in in the castles that were worth a lot of money, which he really didn't want the son. And so he sold a huge portion of all the artwork that his family had been building up for generations to Charles I of England. Interesting. So second generation blows the wealth or changes tack. So a lot of the Italian artwork that England has was actually from the Gonzagas. Getting back to the music. Yeah, getting back to the music. Gonzaga said to his lawyerist, his lawyer literati, (laughs) Yes. You write some lyrics, get... uh, get Monteverdi to put some music to it? Yep. Is that, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So Monteverdi was this incredible musician who had been working with the Gonzagas for, for a, a little while, sort of working up the ranks. And he was such an incredible composer. And he had heard, understood all those changes that the Camerata were making in music. The music was going from the thick texture polyphony to this voice and accompaniment of the monody and what Monteverdi was doing was combining both of those ideas in his music. Now Gonzaga as I said was his great patron of the arts and music and every Friday he would have soirees with his mates and Monteverdi's one of Monteverdi's jobs was to write the music for these soirees. They were often songs full of double entendres, full of sexual ideas, and this guy had killed two people over women, not Monteverdi, mm. Gonzaga. And he also wrote this beautiful church music. And he often would road test the, the raunchy music as religious music and the religious music as raunchy music. So there was this sort of often the melodies would be the same on the Friday as on the Sunday in church. So a bit of a nod and a wink. Well, he actually just said, someone asked him, you know, how can you do this? And he said, it doesn't matter whether it's love of God or love of women, it's love. And the music should be, you know, sort of the same whether you're celebrating your love of God or your love of music. Uh, Oh, women. Monteverdi, love is love. Love is love. Let's have a listen to a little bit of his religious music. Now, Robert, I want you to listen to when we listen to this, is how he incorporates both the modern idea of monody, so that voice and accompaniment, and then you hear the textual stuff of the polyphony. So he's giving you both the old and the new. So for those people who didn't like the new, he's giving you the old as well. Thank you. 
Andy, there's definitely a lot going on there. there yeah. were, and also, yeah, I did hear the polyphony. I did hear different textures going on at different times. So exactly. Got, sometimes it was just voice and accompaniment, mm-hmm. and then it was a richer accompaniment. Mm-hmm. He's so clever. He's giving the audience both the stuff they know and the stuff they like and the stuff they understand, but he's also giving them this brand new stuff as well. We listen to this and go, well, this sounds old. But we have to remember that at the time, it sounded really new. It sounded really new and really, really modern. Okay, so this was cutting-edge stuff. You can't imagine how cutting-edge this is. Monteverdi is encouraged to, to write this opera, and in, in 1607, he writes his first opera. And we call this opera the first real opera. So although we've had... Two other ones written by Perry and Rinuccini. We call this opera the first real opera. And it's Ofeo and written in 1607. And the librettist is Stringio, this lawyer librettist. And it's the story of Ofeo. The interesting thing about the story of Ofeo, again, another Greek tragedy, is that this is about a musician, Ofeo is a musician. And if you go through time, there are so many pieces of music written about the Orfeo story. If you Google it, there's like 40-odd pieces of music written just about this story. So I don't know the story. Okay. So the story is of Orfeo, who is this musician, and he marries Eurydice, and on their wedding day she's bitten by a snake and dies. And he is so distraught that his love has died that he goes down to the underworld to the king of Hades and he sings a song to the ferryman hoping that the ferryman will take him over to Hades and he accepts he goes over to Hades he sings this song to the king of Hades and the king of Hades's wife says yep you can have her back the original deal with the devil Yes, yes, but even more so, listen to this one. So the King of Hades says yes on one condition. As you go from the underworld to the world of the living, she's going to be behind you and you're not allowed to turn around until you get to the land of the living. If you do turn around, she's going to disappear. I'm getting pillars of salt. You are getting pillars of salt. Exactly. Very similar to the pillars of salt. So it's old themes. Old themes. So... He goes, yep, I can cope with this. And so he starts to walk from Hades to the land of the living. And he's a man. And he's thinking, yes, I can do this. This is all cool. This is all fantastic. And then he starts thinking, I've made a deal with the king of the underworld. How can I trust him? Is she really behind me? Is she there? Or is she still in Hades? Or is she dead? Or, you know, he starts to ruminate all these things that could happen. There's this loud noise. And he turns around and she's standing there and then she disappears. The old weakness of the male. We just I mean, I genuinely don't know how far the walk is from the underworld to <laughs> the normal world. Yeah. But surely could it could he not shout to her and yeah, say Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're still there. You, you, just around the next corner. 
That's right. The story wouldn't probably have been quite as good if they'd done that. But yes, anyway, so the endings are often a little bit different. The ending in Monteverdi's is that when he gets back to the land of the living, he dies and both she and him become stars in the universe and they spend the rest of their lives together as stars in the universe. So that's the story of Ofeo. And what Monteverdi did was turn this Greek tragedy into one of the most spectacular operas ever written. Good story is a bit of a three-act structure going on there. I can see that, you know, (laughs) there's a problem, it's solved. That's right. But there are issues attached to the solving of that problem and, you know, repercussions for behaviours. That's exactly right. And, you know, Rob, on the 400th anniversary of this piece, so this piece was written in 1607, in 2007, my mum and I went to hear this piece of music. It was being performed and it was spectacular. It was, this is 400 years old. The whole audience was spellbound. And at the end of the performance, nobody moved. Like the audience, how many hundreds of people in that hall, nobody clapped, nobody moved. It was like we were all in this trance. We were sitting in the front row, so we, we really were involved in this. It was only when the musicians sort of turned and looked at the audience that the spell was broken And everyone just sort of stood up and started screaming and shouting and yelling and and how fantastic it was. I've never, ever been to a performance before or since where nobody moved. Like usually you you hear anything and you're really excited and everyone stands up and starts screaming and shouting. Nobody moved. Do you think it was just overwhelmed? Maybe. It was just we were in this trance. We were on this journey with the ensemble. We were like, whoa. And it's one of the only pieces of music, really, that I just turned to my mum and said, let's do that again. Like, I would have gone back in and done the whole thing again. It was just so incredible. And that was the first piece written in 400 years you were there. Yep, exactly, exactly. So now let's talk about some of the amazing things about this piece of music. The first one is the opening, In this period, 1607, we have instruments that were outside instruments and instruments that were inside instruments. So the inside instruments were those that were able to be controlled, let's say that. So there were the lutes and the harps and the stringed instruments and the viols and all those sorts of instruments. They were inside instruments. And then you had the outside instruments and they were the winds, the brass instruments, those instruments that weren't quite as controllable. Now, when Gonzaga, so Gonzaga had his mates and they all went to this first performance. There was all of this excitement about this first performance. His son writes a letter saying, you know, oh my God, there's been so much kerfuffle in the castle about this first performance. I think I'm just going to have to go to it because, you know, I'm going to have to find out what's going on. And then there's this other letter saying that the best castrato in the area is coming to perform. So, you know, something really exciting must be happening. So there's this buzz in the air. At the same time as this first performance is happening, the libretto is actually published so that the people watching this first performance can see 
the words, know what not the storyline is is all about. So as I said, there's all this commotion going about. And so when the audience first come into this performance, and it's small, it's, there's not like hundreds and hundreds of people. It's just Gonzaga, his cronies, maybe their wives, you know, not a lot of people. They would have been stunned at what they saw in front of them because the musicians were playing instruments that were both the indoor instruments but also the outdoor instruments. So he combines all those instruments that were outdoors and brings them inside. So straight away, the audience knows something really exciting is about to happen. I mean, it sounds like a real innovator. He's like sort of questioning, why should we have inside and outside instruments? That's right. He has thrown out that rule book and he's writing his own. Let's hear a bit of the beginning. It's a pretty spectacular opening. You'd sit up in the front of your seat when that starts. Exactly, exactly. As you said, you know, shut up. Something spectacular is just about to start. When you're talking about the outside instruments, that brass at the beginning mm. seemed like an opening and then the rest of the orchestra joins in. Exactly. So you really knew that, that something spectacular was happening. You know, he is telling you that this isn't your standard Friday soiree. This is going to change the world, basically. So it then starts with La Musica, who she comes at. Well, she is a she now, but she wasn't a she initially. She would have been a castrato. And she comes out and she basically says to the audience that this is spectacular. This is going to be something new. This is going to be something that you have not experienced before, that this is going to be a, a performance of the ages. Okay, so is she within character saying that? Yes, yes. She talks about the spirit of music. She sings this prologue about how sweet the music's going to be. She says to calm the troubled heart. She talks about the power of music. She talks about the drama. She's really setting the scene of this whole fantastic piece of music. Let's have a listen. Okay. I 
La Musica is setting the scene. Mm-hmm. She's introducing, she's like sort of verbalising that intro and saying big stuff's happening. So she is the prologue to the whole story. All right. What happens next? Okay, so big, feisty wedding, everything's fantastic. A pharaoh's marrying his love, Eurydice's, and then the messenger turns up. Is that messenger a slimy messenger? No, the slimy messenger has already happened. Okay. Okay. So the messenger is a friend of Eurydice's who comes to Ofeo and tells him of what's just happened. Okay. He must have been a bit annoyed, I'd imagine. He was probably not very happy. Let's hear a little bit of the messenger and then let's hear Ofeo's response to it. So the messenger was having to tell him that his wife had been bitten and killed by a snake. Is that right? And, you know, I think that this is where Monteverdi is at his absolute best because this is a human tragedy. Can you imagine? Here she is having to give this guy the most tragic news he's I mean, can't even imagine that his wife on, a, on their wedding day has just been killed. And the, the way he writes this music, you know, he's inventing this. This is, this is brand new. It is so full of tragedy and it's so full of pathos. And you can feel that, you know, you can feel her sort of going, oh, shit expletive, expletive, expletive. How am I going to tell him this news? You know, she says, you know, shut up, everybody. I've, I've got this news that I have to sort of say to him. So he, he, he's like sort of in post-wedding bliss. Yeah. And she's the one saying, actually, I'm about to rock your world in such a big way you don't yeah. even know. Yeah, yeah. And then his reaction to this is, again, Monteverdi is an absolute awesomest. Should we have a listen? Yeah, let's have a listen. Cosa fanno 
the vibe after he finds out he's like it's horrible it's a horrible sort of situation to imagine and if we think about how he does it musically you know as i've said to you this is a period of time where most people are listening to music that is many layered and this concept of monody where you have the melody and almost no accompaniment is really new and the fact that at this point in time, he would write, he being Monteverdi, would write the music in the style of polyphony because this is what people know, but he doesn't. He writes it in this brand new style, almost saying to the audience, listen to the words, listen to the pathos in his voice, listen to how the emotion of this man is so much stronger with almost nothing. Like the melody is almost not there. The accompaniment's almost not there. And the not there makes it all that more tragic. That raw human emotion Mm. being expressed in voice. Exactly. And if we think about the time in which this was written in Monteverdi's life, Monteverdi's wife had died recently and he had an 18-year-old sort of ward that he looked after and she had also died. So... This tragedy, this concept of death was so raw to Monteverdi. It's like he's put all his emotion into Ophéo. I mean, they always say, write what you know. So yeah. he's going through stuff and it's a way of expressing it. Exactly. Early days. I also think, you know, sometimes you, know, you go to movies and, or you watch things on TV and you hear people over the top in tragedy and then you hear or see things that have tailored down to almost nothing. And that is almost so much more raw than the over the top. I mean, I, th- I think it's like documentaries and movies. There's something real about seeing a... When you see a real story in a documentary and those emotions are not put on. Mm. So maybe it's like that. He's putting through what he's going through. He's put another story around it, but it was personal. I think we really feel that in this. Then Ofeo goes on his journey down to the ferryman. And when he sings to the ferryman, it's sort of considered one of the the really important songs in this opera. But he goes back to the style of the old. It's full of ornamentation. It's full of trills. It's sort of really, really textually strong and really over the top, totally different to everything that we've just heard with the tragedy.
but he would do anything to get his wife back. So he goes down to Hades, mm-hmm. asks the ferryman, mm-hmm. and what happens? And the ferryman – actually, the ferryman falls asleep and then takes him over. So takes him over to Hades. And when he's with the king of Hades, he again sings this the song of his tragedy – and his Hades' wife goes, let's hear a story. And this is when they say, yep, yeah, you can have her back as long as you, you do the right thing. on the way back. So this is the song where he's mulling into his in his mind as to whether she really is behind him or not. And this is where he's 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 ruminating like a human, you know, what is going on here. Okay, so he's walking back with his so-called wife behind him, but he's the one rule, don't turn back. Don't turn back. So Andy, he, he's on this big walk back with his wife walking behind him, ruminating, is she really there? Have I, have I been hoodwinked? Mm. Going through all sorts of emotions. You can hear that in the music and the dialogue. Yeah, and, and what's, I mean, it starts off, you know, he's, yay, this is great, she's behind me, I'm going to see a, you know, beautiful white breasts and I'm going to see a beautiful eyes and all this sort of stuff. And then he starts going, oh. I mean, as you said, is this all happening? And then you hear the bang. He turns around. I mean, it's. I don't know if it's obviously not meant to be taken literal, but it is sort of representing 
the illogic of grief, the pain of grief. You'll do anything to get that person back. The fact that we think or think too much, like we we can't just take anything by face value. It has to be every side has to be deliberated and thought about and the consequences discussed. You know, we just can't just leave things as is. I mean, in, in truth, the lyrics were written, written by a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, that's their, that's their gig, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope I haven't lost any lawyers. <laughs> so... As I said, Afeo comes back to to the land of the living, dies himself, and the two of them become these stars in heaven. And the way Monteverdi ends this whole tragedy is, again, quite similar to how Shakespeare ended his plays. You know, quite often in Shakespeare's plays, you have all of this tragedy, and then there'll be a little epilogue at the end which sort of sends you off feeling happy although everything has been tragic and we hear exactly the same thing in this it ends with this little bit at the end where the music is light and lively and happy and it's like you know okay we've we've had you in this our hands of disbelief for for this hour and a half or however it's long. But we don't want you to leave with a grimace. We want you to leave with a, a big smile on your face. So let's just bring you back down to earth. It was all a story and let's send you off with this. All right, so a nice, a nice happy ending. That's right, here it is. I mean, it definitely is more upbeat than previously beforehand. Exactly. So you hear, so it begins with this upbeat, it finishes with this upbeat. There's bits of upbeat in the middle, but on the whole, it's 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 a tragedy. This piece seems way ahead of its time, I can see. I mean, it's got all the elements that, not just of opera, of storytelling. It's it's just remarkable. It is, as I said, you know, stunned stuns audiences today and it's stunned audiences at the time so when Monteverdi wrote this you know it was just for this small group of people and then a couple of years later he was asked to write another one and he wrote it for a the festival in Mantua and it's estimated that thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to this alfresco performance you know there's no there's no uh, microphone so you can imagine what they heard virtually nothing all to come and see this brand new spectacle so if it wasn't for Monteverdi's Affeo, opera literally would have disappeared. 
Andy, thank you for that. We're learning so much, and I, re- I really enjoy it. I think I will uh, have a listen to the whole opera, so we'll have the details of Ofeo in the show notes. Mm. You know what would go well with the opera? Basque cheesecake? Mm, I wouldn't mind a piece and a nice tea or coffee. I think you need it after the tragedy of poor old Ofeo. And Andy, as always, we love making these. Where are we going next time? We've hit... You know, we've gone from mass to opera. What's happening next? Next time we're doing Mozart. And it's a little bit of Mozart that you probably don't think I'm going there. So if you think of all of Mozart and you think of all the big changes of that Mozart made in, in the concept of, of art music, we're not doing that. All right. Look forward to it. For those that want to catch up on previous episodes, go to Apple or Spotify, look up Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. That's right. And uh, we will see you next time for another look at these important pieces of music that change the concept and the history of music. Cheers. See you later. Bye. Podcast has been produced by eTales.com.au.